Previously, in part one of the Teresa Lore case, you heard that she had mysteriously vanished from her college campus on the night of November 3rd, 1978. We went back into her childhood, gaining some insight into who she was and went over the facts of what had transpired that fateful day leading up to her disappearance. Her brother John gave us an account of how police and school officials not only refused to look for her, but engaged in character assassination of the missing 19-year-old. Five and a half months later, her body was found, but the autopsy was unable to determine her cause of death. According to police, Teresa had most likely died from a drug overdose, and for 20 years, the Allure family accepted that explanation. Or so it seemed. Beneath the surface, the theory of her disappearance had been gnawing away at the whole family. Teresa's younger brothers married and started families of their own, but something inside of them told them it just didn't add up. In the late 90s, the Allure brothers decided to begin their own investigation, hoping to finally put the haunting mystery of their sister's death to rest. And what they discovered was astonishing. But before we reveal what they discovered, it's important for us to lay the framework and set the stage for the key players that play a part in this tragedy. Please join us as we probe further into the cold case of Teresa Lore, exposing possible oversights in her investigation and leads to potential suspects in her murder. The 70s was a tumultuous time. There was a significant growth in women's rights and roles in society, including the ability to decide if they wanted to have children, largely due to the availability of the birth control pill. Abortion had also become legalized in the U.S. Other marginalized groups also continued to fight for equality, and many Americans joined in the protest against the ongoing war in Vietnam. The 70s were famous for flamboyant fashion, but also for being in an era of economic struggle, cultural change, and technological advances. Families enjoyed their first home computer. Housewives reveled in convenience appliances. And lest we forget, the introduction of the 8-track tape. It was at this time that progressive rock and disco emerged bringing forth a new generation of sounds from groups like Pink Floyd to ABBA. Macrame and yoga were common hobbies of the day, while books like I'm Okay, You're Okay and The Joy of Sex began appearing on coffee tables. People were more open-minded about sexual experimentation, producing various subcultures like swingers. The 70s saw a change in traditional family structure, projected through shows like The Brady Bunch, promoting blended families. In general, by the end of the decade, 
many young people were using their hard-fought freedom to wear whatever they wanted, say whatever they wanted, and to engage in more liberated sexual experiences while experimenting in drug use like never before. But as this generation surfaced and became more comfortable expressing themselves, the baby boomer generation became more increasingly uncomfortable. They had grown up during a completely different day and an age that encouraged women to leave the workforce and become devoted housewives and mothers while the men brought home the bacon. It was a time when the boys club flourished. All this hangs as the backdrop to the quaint little borough of Sherbrooke where Teresa was last seen. The little borough where Champlain College was located wasn't actually a college in the way that most of us think. In Quebec, they had schools which they called CEGEPs, which are vocational training schools preparing teenagers for college or university. Instead of attending high school from the ages of 14 to 18, like most students do in North America, Quebec has a number of schools called CEGEPs, comprised of students between the ages of 16 and 18 years old. Champlain College also had an affiliated university on the same campus in Lennoxville called Bishop's University. In the late 70s, Champlain College saw a huge influx of students and found themselves unable to accommodate them all at their campus residence. A plan was in the works to build another residence, but the process had been delayed. They found themselves scrambling to find another source of housing for the overflow of students and eventually decided on renting two buildings located 15 kilometers away in the village of Compton, King's Hall and the Gillard House, with the only form of transportation being a shuttle bus. The two residents filled with 16 and 18 year olds was barely supervised by the superintendent and his assistant. You can only imagine what that was a recipe for. These teenagers were basically left to their own devices. Late night parties consisting of illegal drugs and alcohol were to be expected. Unsupervised hormonal teenagers engaged in sexual activities in their dorm rooms. We actually went digging to see if we could find yearbooks from Champlain College around this time, but we were unable to find any. We were, however, able to find yearbooks from the neighboring university campus, which provided a glimpse into what students were like at that time. Page after page showed photos of students who were clearly intoxicated, laying on top of one another, row upon row of beer bottles. One photo showed a student mooning the camera, and another one showed one student tackling another, with the text below it stating, if this is rape, then I love it. Perhaps an example of what may have been a perception among some of the male students at that time, that sexual assault and rape was a joke. We mention this because at that time, there had been a string of sexual assaults and rapes that had been reported happening on the campus. A writer for the Bishop's University paper warned that there was a growing problem of sexual violence against women. Girls had made reports to officials at Champlain College, Bishop's University, and the police. A fear grew among young women and they were scared to walk home at night. 
Lights meant to illuminate the campus had been burnt out for over a year. Concerning one of the attacks, a police officer at that time was reported commenting that everyone was making a mountain out of a molehill. Other assaults happened and were apparently brushed off as quickly as the ones before. And the same police officer was again reported shrugging them off and saying that such things were to be expected at a university where so many women congregate. The university's journalists protested that authorities were not taking the situation seriously. Mary Koss, a psychology professor at the University of Arizona, has been researching campus sexual assault for decades and was the one to coin the term date rape back in the 1980s. During the course of her research, she interviewed thousands of victims and self-described perpetrators. Among the most disturbing of her findings were two from the National Survey published in 1987. 7.7 of male students volunteered anonymously that they had engaged in or attempted forced sex. They would say, Yes, I held a woman down to have sex with her against her consent, but that definitely was not rape. Part of the reason that few of her respondents considered themselves sexual offenders is that they faced no negative consequences, no accusation, no shame, no punishment. Mary Koss points out that campuses have a situational risk factor for sexual abuse. She says the three primary drivers that enable a small minority of men to offend without consequences are a culture of high alcohol consumption, peer pressure from other men to prove their sexual prowess, and men's own attitudes favoring impersonal sex. So as you can see, what was happening at Champlain College and Bishop's University was alarmingly quite common and the school authorities had been seemingly developing a habit of turning a blind eye to what was out of their control. And as the old saying goes, hear no evil, see no evil. This new wave of adolescence had dropped like a bomb into the little borough of Lennoxville. And because of the two-year turnover at Champlain, any problem with particular students would soon be short-lived once the old flock rolled out and the new flock rolled in. Every problem was a temporary problem, and they just needed to ride it out. And in the case of Teresa, it appeared that to distance themselves from the problem was equally as important. So we've set the stage, and you now understand the cultural clash that existed at the time of Teresa's death. What was brewing in the underbelly of Lennoxville and Compton was a recipe for disaster. Let's fast forward now, 20 years later, to the late 90s, when Andre told John that he wanted to look back into his sister's case. Taking it to right around 1996, I was living in Los Angeles, California, and he came out for a visit. He told me, I'm going to go back and look into Teresa's case. I think it's never sat well with me. I think there's still time that we can find things. And so he'd gotten a hold of my father's papers from that era, and he was going through it. Now, Andre, at this time, it was still the drug theory. 
and he spent considerable time on it. He re-interviewed students, got them on the phone. He went to quite elaborate degrees of kind of espionage. He decided he was going to pretend that new evidence had been found and that the police were looking into it again. And he would do that to kind of shake the tree, to kind of make people scared and maybe disclose something. He had a target in mind. He felt he knew who had done this. And if he could scare enough people that somebody might confess to something or confess knowledge of something. And he got nowhere with it because, of course, no one confessed anything because no one knew anything. But what is interesting about the timing of that, Andre got involved in that shortly after his first child, his daughter, was born. his daughter was around three is when he started this up. And so I preface that because the same thing happened to me. Shortly after my first daughter was born, right around the age that she was going to kindergarten, I felt compelled to look into this matter again. I don't know psychologically what was going on, but some of it you can guess. Yeah, I had a daughter. My parents' firstborn daughter died. Now I had a daughter. A lot of it was fear. When my children ask me, what happened to your sister? What am I going to tell them? What's the lesson I'm going to impart to them? And is that lesson just say no to drugs? And that didn't sit well with me. I was like, you know, I've heard that, but I don't know that. So let's open it up and let's have a look. So that's when I got a hold of, again, my father's file and started going through it. So this would have been 2002, 2003. And that's when I phoned up the Sefti Quebec in Sherbrooke and I asked permission to see Teresa's file. It was around that time that John also solicited the help of a woman by the name of Patricia Pearson a former girlfriend from high school who is now living in Toronto, Ontario. Patricia is the granddaughter of former Canadian Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson, but known in her own right as a tenacious crime reporter and author. She's covered well-known high-profile cases, including one of the most well-known Canadian cases involving Carla Hamalka and Paul Bernardo. Patricia brings us back to the 70s once again, and reminisces about how she became aware of Teresa's death. My father was posted to Moscow as a diplomat in 1979. So I had to go to boarding school because I still had two years of high school. I wound up in New Brunswick and met John. So it would have probably been about eight months after his sister was found that I met him. And I became very intimately involved with him and his family as his first girlfriend. And I remember sleeping in Teresa's bed. That would be the bedroom that I slept in on weekend leave from boarding school, often, maybe every other weekend. And being aware of her hiking boots, tidily stored in the corner of the room, everything was preserved exactly as she would have left it. And I remember his mother being often asleep in her room. And because I was only 15 and 16, I didn't really understand in a weird way the impact of grief. 
so I just remember thinking, oh, so John's mother is just one of those people that sleeps all day. It was kind of a, uh, you know, a kind of facile understanding that I had. But I do remember that the assumption was that she had died of a drug overdose. And none of us sort of really examined that. That just was a given, that John had had an older sister and she had died of a drug overdose. Patricia and John parted ways and headed off in different directions, but reconnected many years later as John began to question his sister's death. He knew that Patricia had become a crime journalist and was wondering if she might be able to help him uncover what had really happened that night. It wasn't until 2002. I had kids. I was married. I was living in Toronto. He had kids. He was married. He was living in North Carolina. But he called me. And he knew that at that point I had become a crime journalist. And so he came to me and he said, you know, what do you remember about Teresa's death? And we talked about it a little bit. And then he said, you know, do you really think that she died of a drug overdose? Patricia agreed to help John dig further into his sister's case, along with writing a three-part series that would be published in the National Post. And I remember I would drive from Toronto, he would come up from North Carolina, we'd go all over the eastern townships, interviewing people, interviewing potential witnesses. It was incredibly, obsessively consuming for, for both of us, because we really felt like there was a path that had never been followed. Patricia had also managed to get in touch with one of her contacts, who was a geographical profiler named Kim Rosmo. He was the first police detective to suggest that Vancouver had a serial killer on their hands. His theory was brushed off by other colleagues, but was later found to be terrifyingly accurate. The killer was Robert Picton, a pig farmer living in that area. When Patricia approached Kim Rosmo with the details of Teresa's case, he was perplexed by the theory police had provided. Kim was somebody who knew a lot about sexual homicide, serial homicide, and I gave him the information on John's sister, and I said, what do you think? And he said, well, that's, no, like, that's not, that's not a drug overdose. Okay, walk me through that. Why, if a 19-year-old girl accidentally overdoses on drugs at a party with her friends, why would her friends, who are probably all incredibly high, strip her of her clothes, drive her a kilometer away, dump her in a creek and then throw her wallet 10 kilometers elsewhere, a different thing, and hide her clothes away that are never found again. Like, why would you do that? What, what, what's the thinking for a bunch of teenagers in that situation? It just doesn't add up. What does add up is the fact that somebody who's found in their bra and underwear in a dump location and is the victim of a sexual homicide. So I remember that shoe dropping, and I think John had already begun to open himself up to that idea on his own. But Rosmo really provided us with a frame of kind of expert understanding of that. So that was pretty mind-blowing, thinking, oh, my God, we're dealing with something that should have been investigated as a homicide when it happened, but now it's up to us. What Kim Rosmo was suggesting was that this wasn't a case of accidental suicide. He was suggesting that it was a case of sexual homicide. So if it had been a sexual predator, who could it have been? Could it have been someone from the campus? Given the attitudes surrounding sexual assault at that time and the number of attacks that had been reported, or was it someone that lived in Compton or Lennoxville? 
Or perhaps, had it been someone who didn't even live in the area and had been traveling through those towns? If Teresa's death had been handled like a homicide from day one, is it possible that police and school officials would have handled the investigation much differently? When Teresa disappeared, she was actually reported last being seen by three different witnesses. But for some reason, John told us that the police only accounted for one in their reports. But a few weeks after Teresa went missing, another witness came forward claiming that she had seen Teresa that night at 9pm, about to head up the staircase in King's Hall, where her brother was staying a few floors up. Her brother Andre remembers hearing a knock at his door between 9 and 9.30, but didn't answer. A third witness recalls seeing Teresa at 9.30 making herself a snack in the King's Hall dining room, but John says the police hadn't considered either statement credible for some reason. John spoke with a witness who claimed she had seen his sister on the staircase that night. Years later, and she still insists today that she is absolutely certain she saw and spoke with Teresa that night. If that in fact is the case, then that would mean that Teresa had managed to safely make her way back home to the residence that evening. In trying to determine some kind of timeline for how and when everything occurred that night, John decided to try and do an experiment involving three Timex watches. You see, when Teresa was discovered, she'd been wearing her Timex watch, which had stopped at 11 o'clock. John wanted to see that if he put three Timex watches in water, how long would it take for them to stop working? Each watch stopped after roughly 20 minutes after being submerged. So theoretically, this would mean that if Teresa's watch had been working that night and had been set for the correct time, that her body could have been dropped into the water around 10.40 p.m. So between 9.30 p.m. when she was last seen making a snack and 10.40 p.m., where had she gone? And what happened? Over the course of the duo's investigation, Patricia had developed her own theory on this. For me, I remember a, a big moment was realizing that a key to the whereabouts might have to do with the fact that she was a smoker, because I was a smoker. So I knew that when you run out of cigarettes, that becomes pretty much number one priority is to go and find a vending machine and get your pack of cigarettes. Um, and we had some testimony or eyewitness reports that she had bummed a cigarette earlier that day that she disappeared. If she was bumming cigarettes, it could have meant a number of things. A few possibilities are that she'd run out of them and just hadn't had a chance to buy some more, or she was out of money, or perhaps she had intended on borrowing some money. John speculated that at 9 p.m. she might have been headed up the staircase to see if her younger brother Andre had any spare change. There was also a restaurant that existed at that time that sold cigarettes, and it was about an eight-minute walk from the dorm down an isolated, dark country side road that she'd walked down many times before. Is it possible that she decided to walk that night? Or had she asked for a ride from someone at the residence? 
When we asked John if any students had vehicles at the residence, he said yes. And the one student who had one, police had considered a suspect. John told us that the student had been known as a petty drug dealer on campus and actually lived one floor above Teresa in the Gillard house. He also happened to be the boyfriend of one of her friends, the friend who had asked Teresa to join her for the weekend as she was visiting family. This male student was also found going through Teresa's locker the week she went missing, claiming that he was looking for clues as to Teresa's whereabouts. John dug up this particular student's statement given to police, and it said, When Teresa disappeared, I was living at the Gillard house. I knew her, but wasn't a close friend of mine. I left the Gillard house on November 2nd. I don't remember when I saw her last. Must have been that Thursday on the bus. According to John, he had also stated to police that he was in Vermont at the time at his parents' cottage. An alibi was never confirmed and his car was never searched. John remembers his father telling him about a meeting he had with the lead investigator about a year after Teresa was found dead, where he was told about this other possible theory involving the student. That it was probably a guy, a student, I won't know name him. I know the name that they were focusing on. And a friend of Teresa's who did this thing, who dropped the body in. And he, he says, all we have to do is wait. We'll wait and eventually someone will say something. Don't, don't worry, Mr. Alar. This will resolve itself if we do nothing and we wait. But 40 years of waiting and still no one has come forward with anything. Given the blatant number of sexual assaults being committed and ignored at that time on campus, could it have been a student that murdered Teresa? Friday nights were party central, and three students had been reported being taken to the hospital that evening after tripping out on acid on the front lawn between the two dorms. Had an intoxicated male attempted to take things too far with Teresa, and then when she denied his advances, the student panicked and tried to silence her? As John and Patricia continued their investigation, pouring over archives, John stumbled upon a police magazine covering homicides in Quebec dating back to the 70s. He discovered that another female named Louise Cameron had also disappeared and was found murdered in a wooded area around the same time period as Teresa. She was also roughly the same age. And strangely enough, she had also been found in the spring once the snow had melted. Patricia decided it was time to bring the geographical profiler, Kim Rosmo, back into the case. Patricia explained to us the science behind his area of expertise. Kim Rosmo had pioneered this idea of geographic profiling, where you can essentially figure out if some crimes are connected to each other if they follow along certain geographic routes. So the idea being that people don't go out of their way to find you at your abandoned cottage in the middle of the woods where you're terrified because no one will hear you scream and attack you there because that's not actually on their routine activities pathway. So it's scary for them, too, to go into the middle of the woods like in a horror movie. And they are actually far more likely to opportunistically attack people along the pathways that they follow every day to and from their work or wherever they're going. 
John and Patricia soon discovered that there hadn't just been one other cold case besides Teresa's. There had been two in the same time frame. And the second was a young girl named Manon Dubay, who just like Louise and Teresa, had again been found after the snow had thawed. My memory is that we went back to Kim Rosmo, and I said, okay, look, there's these two other females have been found abandoned within 18 months of each other in this area. You think that's significant? And he said, well, it wouldn't be significant if it was in Beirut or Detroit. You have to sort of know the context of how many homicides are going on in a given community before you can decide whether there's any significance to that. It was a significant cluster of similar unsolved, abandoned women's bodies in this area. So we reported that back faithfully to Kim. He said, make me a map. I want to look at this on a map. Where were the bodies found? What is that going to tell us about whether they're connected? So we did that. Um, my memory was that he came back to us and said, yeah, you've got you know a fairly strong case here that this actually may not only be one homicide in the case of Teresa Lore, but serial homicide. So there was a whole bunch of connections between the road where the wallet was dumped, the route where Teresa was dumped, where the other two girls were either abducted or dumped. It all suggested a kind of routine activities pathway for this one particular suspect, whoever that might be. As Patricia and John continued trying to tie information together, they also discovered a strange coincidence involving where Teresa's wallet had been located. About a week after Teresa's body was discovered, her wallet had been seen by a farmer at the side of the road, the exact location where a man had once chased his own daughter. The farmer's daughter reported his description to the police, and it was similar to the physical description as the man's students had reported sexually assaulting women on campus. And the land upon which the wallet had been thrown, we later discovered, was where an unsuccessful abduction had taken place. The daughter of the farmer who owned that land had been barreled after by a guy who parked his car at the side of the road and just ran at her and tried to capture her, and she'd hidden in the orchard. And she said that it was the most terrifying thing she'd ever experienced. It was nothing like sexual harassment or ogling or anything. It was predatory. But she got away from him because the police came along the road and saw the guy. You know, I don't know, asked him what he was doing there or something like that. And she got away. Another interesting bit of information that was discovered about Teresa's wallet was that the police had neglected to inform his parents that it was found a week later in a different location. They just handed it back to them like it had been found with the body all along. Patricia also found it highly unusual that the wallet had mysteriously turned up a week after Teresa's body was discovered. The timing of it all seemed a little too coincidental. As we continued to question John about the events that transpired back in 1978, he started rummaging around his attic, looking through his old case files, and retrieved a statement by his brother's girlfriend at the time. She had been interviewed by a private detective the Allures had hired to retrace the steps of their daughter once the police had urged them to go back home and do nothing but sit and wait. Her statement indicated that she remembered seeing an unfamiliar man on campus that day. She described him as 5'8", with brown chin-length hair, wearing dark, casual clothing. She recalls him saying he was visiting someone and that he was from Alberta. There was a pattern emerging. 
Patricia remembers that while they were searching for more information on who this mysterious man might be, she was approached by another crime source. That I heard from an academic in Quebec that they had interviewed a guy who fit the description that was given by the young woman who evaded the guy who tried to capture her on her father's farm property where Teresa's wallet was found. So he was very short, dark hair, a couple of other things. And this guy was now serving time for sexual homicide. And so we, we offered that up. We offered that up to the Cerise de Quebec. It was like, okay, we think it might be a serial homicide and we think it might be this guy. The person they were describing was a man by the name of Luke Gregoire. You know, the most compelling thing about him was in 1981, he was arrested for an attack on a young woman in a parking garage in Sherbrooke, Quebec. Where this attack happened was right near where Louise Cameron lived and worked. And if you went the other way, it led right to Lennoxville, where Teresa was studying at Champlain College. So he attacked this woman in 81 in a parking garage. He sodomized her and attempted to strangle her to death with his bare hands. He choked her until she was unconscious. She regained consciousness. He then said, I've done this several times before and I'll do it again. She pleaded for her life. The only reason she thinks she managed to survive is because she appealed to him that she had four children and that she didn't want to leave them motherless. This somehow moved him. He decided to stop. He ran away or drove away. But Gregoire had a long history. He grew up in Sherbrooke. He grew up across the river from where Louise Cameron lived. He was a, uh, a roofer by trade. And we have a whole series of sexual assaults in Sherbrooke and Lennoxville leading up to these cases involving a construction worker, a guy who was described as being able to communicate in, in both French and English. So what happens to Gregoire? Well, eventually after he gets paroled in the Sherbrooke parking garage, he moves back out to Edmonton and Calgary, presumably because that's what he's familiar with it. And after a series of attempts to rehabilitate Gregoire, he does it again. He picks up a convenience store worker, strangles her unconscious, has sex with her, and then strangles her again and kills her. Before abducting, the 7-Eleven employee, 22-year-old Leilani Silva, he had tried unsuccessfully to abduct another female an hour earlier. A vehicle description led investigators to Gregoire and the team began watching him. In 1993, he was arrested after he was spotted leaving his home to dump a bag of the 22-year-old's belongings in a trash bin. Gregoire had abducted and raped Silva only later to strangle her with such force it crushed her larynx. Police pleaded with Luke to tell them where they could find her body, but he would tell them nothing. They even showed him her 7-Eleven badge hoping to evoke some emotion. He remained unmoved and divulged nothing. Shortly after, a passerby discovered the young woman's body in a ditch which was at the edge of the city back then. What we noticed was that there appeared to be some similarities between Leilani's case and Teresa's. Both were similar in age, 
Both were abducted at night and seemed to vanish into thin air. Both were also found dumped in isolated areas. Luke Gregoire had attempted to dispose of Silva's belongings in a garbage bin. Except for Teresa's scarf and undergarments, the rest of her clothing had never been found. Perhaps they had been dumped in a different location? And there was something else. A garbage bag of another woman's clothing was discovered approximately 300 meters from where Teresa's body had been found. No one knew who the clothing belonged to. Begging the question, had this been a regular dumping ground site for Luke Gregoire during his time he was living in the Sherbrooke area? And then there was also his method of killing victims, which was strangulation. He strangled Leilanley, and he had strangled the woman in the parking garage. Louis Cameron had also been strangled. And in the case of Teresa, although the coroner report had stated no apparent marks, John also later discovered that there had been a second coroner report that said different. Years later, 2003, another coroner's report is found. A reporter from the Montreal Gazette named Paul Cherry phones me and he says, what about this coroner's report that was taken not during the autopsy, but the morning that the body was found that says there are marks of strangulation around her neck? And I say, what? And he says, sure, I'll fax it over to you. And sure enough, there it is. Coroner Durant says, this is the body of a five foot five female who visibly noticed marks of strangulation around the neck. Buried. My father never saw that. He asked for a copy of the autopsy report and he got it and he got it translated into English. They never bothered to show him that. So why had that detail been removed from the report that was provided to the family? John also found out that there had been bruising found on her underarms, possibly indicating that she had been dragged by someone who grabbed her. When John and Patricia provided what they knew to the Sûreté de Quebec, police investigators flew to Calgary to question Luke in prison. He denied ever killing Teresa and took a polygraph test. But while often accurate, polygraphs are not foolproof, experts say. Proponents to the polygraph will say that tests are about 90% accurate, while critics will say it's about 70% accurate, said Frank Horvath of the American Polygraph Association. Many people refer to polygraph tests as lie detector tests, and that's a bit of a misnomer. There is no test that can detect lies. The process in which the questions are being asked and the sequence of the questions may affect how a person reacts, Horvath said. Since the process is not perfect, that could lead to the possibility of error. When John heard the results, he decided to question Luke Gregoire on his own terms and sent him a letter in prison. Before the end of his life, I wrote him directly and asked him, did you, did you kill my sister? He immediately wrote me back. He said he didn't. Luke was later killed by another prisoner. At some point, John had asked police to hand over the minimal clothing that Teresa had been wearing at the time of her death in hopes of finding some new evidence through forensic testing. But to his complete shock, they had disposed of all the evidence. When he asked why... You know, when you ask them why they tossed the evidence, they say, because we ran out of storage. 
But then when you ask them the question, do you have all the resources you need to do your job? The answer always is, oh, yes, of course we do. We have everything we need. We don't need anything else. Um, well, you appear to need storage space. Now, I'm being a little more than slightly facetious here. Are there cases in, in other with other agencies where evidence gets tossed? Yes, most certainly. But when it happens, it's considered foobar beyond belief, right? It is, it's the worst mistake. In the case of these Quebec cases, what we see systemically is evidence being tossed. Again, to question why, there's only two conclusions, incompetence or collusion and corruption. In our interview with Patricia, we asked for her thoughts after realizing that there was an entanglement of facts and suspects that had seemingly never been properly assessed or even investigated remarkable to me that so little had been done, uh, particularly in light of how few homicides were actually being committed in the eastern townships at that time. The idea that the police would put so little effort into not only finding Teresa, but even into preserving the dignity of Teresa, you know, that they would castigate the parents in effect, shift the blame, make it not there. I mean, basically a, a huge wave of historic misogyny. I mean, that was just so rank in the air of that experience. It was like, oh my God, like they care so little about young women in this particular time in the late 1970s. They won't even lift a finger. It was like a fear of sexuality, a fear of drug culture, a fear of independent women. I mean, there was just, there was an implicit victim blaming deep within that whole experience that completely blew me away comes back to me as like, were they just covering up for themselves? They destroyed all the evidence. You just feel like, you know, maybe the cops were the ones who were doing all this stuff. I don't know. Like, it just, it was very shocking. John had discovered that there had been 16 other unsolved homicides of a related nature between 1975 and 1981 in Quebec, and that each disappearance seemed to be handled differently depending on the victim. In the case of the 10-year-old girl that went missing, Manon Dubay, a full-on search had been conducted. Camera was 77, and that case had high exposure. When Louise died, and in the manner that she died, the brass from the HQ in Montreal was brought in. That was rarely done. It was not done in Teresa's case. And partly because in, in Montreal, there was a series of cases going on of strangulation, stranger murders, with women's bodies being dumped in isolated areas that was not dissimilar. I think certainly when the brass came to look at Louise, they probably had that on their mind. Now, in the case of Manon's Bay, equally a, a great deal of exposure, but for a different reason. A child goes missing. She's, she's like 10 or 12. So, of course, the, the hearts of the community go out. There were huge search parties for her. There are task squads on snowmobiles looking around the area for her. There are teams of search dogs. And again, not only officers, the community is involved in the search for that, that body. And, and eventually two young kids find her frozen in, in a body of water face down. Then why is there so little coverage of traced in the papers? I mean, barely anything. The Montreal tabloid LO Police covers it. And in fact, LO Police is the only one to say this is similar to the Louise Camera case. That's a voice coming out of Montreal. The local papers wouldn't touch it, wouldn't touch it at all. 
Patricia felt that the way Teresa's case had been handled was indicative of how women were viewed at that time. You know, we talk now about the missing and murdered Aboriginal women, and that's where we need to focus now. But the fact is that in the 70s, it was all Canadian women who were essentially treated that way. I mean, it was remarkable that they did so little in trying to solve that. Again, it was this period of time where I was like, you know, oh, so, so she's dead, and what's actually more important is that we preserve our reputation because we are spinning around like hogs on ice as we're trying to control our population of students in these new buildings, and we don't want any PR, and we don't want any negative publicity. Like, it wasn't somehow within the culture to prioritize the honoring of her death. There was something about the framework of permission in terms of what you can get away with, what's not important, what is important culturally that enabled that to be the case. That I don't think would happen now. I really don't. It boggles the mind that their first instinct, whether it was the police or the administrators of, of Champlain College or the community members in Compton Village, their first instinct was to downplay it. It had appeared to Patricia that at the time of Teresa's disappearance, the school had been more concerned about protecting their own personal interests than in finding out what had actually happened to one of their very own students. It was clear to Patricia that the school was in way over their heads and the easiest thing to do at that time was to place as much distance between themselves and where Teresa might have been. Like, we're in over our heads. I mean, imagine. I have my son who's 17, my daughter's 20. Okay, here you go. You're going to school now, and your school consists of a dormitory in the middle of nowhere where there's no supervision. Have fun. I mean, <laughs> the mayhem that would ensue is so obvious, and they must have been aware of that. So the evidence of that mayhem came in the form of the death of one of their students, and that became anathema. It was our worst nightmare, and so we were going to disown it right away. Something we found interesting was that the superintendent in charge of King's Hall and the Gillard House had only been hired the summer prior to Teresa's arrival. However, within months of her disappearance, he quietly resigned. According to John, he was never interviewed by police and was never heard from again. And during a time when the school was experiencing a housing shortage, they also suddenly decided to shut down King's Hall and cram all 240 students into the Gillard House. When an English professor teaching at Champlain College that year was asked why he thought the school had handled things the way they did, he stated, the reputation of the college uh, might be at stake because that could lead to questions about how the um, uh, residence was uh, managed. While doing our own investigating, we attempted to track down other former students that had been attending Champlain at the same time as Teresa, but we were unsuccessful. We did, however, manage to stumble upon an alumni webpage 
that had a few former students from Champlain. One that we managed to get in touch with had attended a few years after Teresa. When we asked him if he'd heard about Teresa's disappearance and death, he said he hadn't. He said that there were still a lot of parties and drinking going on while he was there, but he didn't hang out with that crowd. He also told us that headcounts continued to not be conducted at the dorms. John managed to get in touch with a few teachers that taught at Champlain during the time of Teresa's death, and they claim to have never heard about what happened either. There had been no candlelight vigil for Teresa Lore, and no memorial had been set up in her honor. It was as if she had never existed. Some people may wonder why the Allure family didn't push authorities to do more. It's one of the reasons why we felt it was so important to explain the cultural framework at that time. Patricia also went into some detail regarding her understanding on the importance of this cultural mosaic in relation to how this case was investigated. You know, there was just this huge culture shift between our parents' generation. Nobody, you know, in my parents' generation knew what the hell was going on or how to deal with it or how serious it was. The morality of it was just explosive. You could be so easily shamed in that context. And that was what the police took advantage of that and the school. They took advantage of that vulnerability to shame in that time frame to get themselves out off the hook. They just essentially didn't treat it like a homicide. So, I mean, it might have been a very easy thing to solve at the time. Because I remember when I was with John as a teenager, it's not like there was kind of a stirring resentment within his family. It's like they genuinely accepted that the explanation they were given had to be the explanation. It settled on all of us, you know, that that was the blanket. That was the explanation. When we asked John if his parents still believed that Teresa died from a drug overdose, his answer to us was... Oh, they, they have a definite understanding now that that's not the case. But understand, it was a little rocky. It was a little difficult. I, I was basically questioning their judgment and their authority. How could you not see this? How could you not see what was clearly in front of your eyes? But then remember, I wasn't the one in that situation. So I can't imagine the confusion and what level of gullibility I would have, particularly when, you know, you're entrusting to the institutions. You think the police are there to solve crimes. You think the school is there to act in the best interest of your child. You would never dream that institutions would have their own self-interest. Let's, let's put it that way. John had hoped that all his efforts in bringing new information to the Surti de Quebec would lead them into reinvestigating Teresa's case. But this time, with the kind of fervor that should have been demonstrated when she had first disappeared. But every step of the way, he was disappointed. At every stage in the journey, uh, it's always my intention that this is the last time I'm going to do something. So when the Who Killed Teresa stories came out, three-part feature, I certainly got the Seth de Quebec's attention. And now will you do something? And they didn't. So I started a, a website because I was noticing this was a one-off going to be this one story no one was ever going to hear about it again it was going to get lost again so i started a website to continue the process of talking about it and then of course w5 came forward so i thought oh this is great an hour that's 2005 so again i go 
And now is this enough? I quickly come to the conclusion that this is great, but it's not helping me having all this English publicity. I need the French publicity. So then I go on a, about four years improving my French and learning the ropes, finding the right people in that province to advance my cause. And out of that comes two documentaries in French, a half hour on Teresa by the Claude Poirier, the investigative journalist, and then a, a movie called Cette Femme, which will be coming out this fall. So again, I'm like, and now is it enough? interview with Patricia, she tells us about when John brought her to King's Hall, where Teresa allegedly had last been seen. The historical-looking building that had once housed students has since been converted into a hotel. There was a witness description of her going up that staircase, and that was the last time she had been seen on that staircase. Now that I was a mother, as opposed to when I was a 15-year-old dating John, I just had this incredibly visceral sense of the horror of not knowing where that little foot and that little Chinese slipper went next. Thinking about my daughter, who's now the age that Teresa was then. And all you want is you just want to, you know, it's your job to keep them safe and to know where they are and to have your radar up and your antenna up for them and, and to not know where that next step went and to not know what those final words might have been that she'd said aloud to anyone on the planet. What was the last look on her face? Like To have that information not be yours, but the information of a predator hit me in the gut. John had also taken Patricia to see Teresa's final resting place, the muddy bog located down a remote gravel road where she lay alone in the elements for months, unbeknownst to anyone, except for the person who murdered her. For me, what I remember is just that sense of how extraordinarily poised John was, because it's almost inconceivable to be sort of walking across this muddy ground, the ravens in the distance, and the odd, infrequent car along the gravel road, and this kind of pool of still water and know that your beloved elder sister was just here, like garbage, dumped for five months, and that he was able to compartmentalize that to some extent in order to bring in his investigative brain really blew me away. I, I just I couldn't believe the uh, balancing act he was engaging in and being both a grieving sibling and a man in quest of justice. A photo of Teresa's half-naked body that had been dumped like trash made it to the newspapers. But that image of her was far from how the family wished her to be remembered. I would like her to be remembered for her adventurous, rebellious spirit. She loved hiking and biking the outdoors. She loved that stuff. And then on the other hand, internally, just a tremendous wit, a really, really funny person who was tremendously kind to people. As I say, she was very accepting of all kinds of people. John also wanted to make a point of explaining the significance of the missing persons poster to the families 
of the victims. You know, they're a family photo, but when a person goes missing, the police need to identify them. So that family treasure gets put on a have-you-seen-this-person poster with their measurements, their weight, eye color, etc. And then very quickly, that very personal thing becomes just another missing person case. In the case of Teresa, if, if you look at that photo of her in the green shirt and the white pants, yeah, that's taken in our kitchen when we were kids in St. John, New Brunswick. I would just ask anyone to remember that that may become the face of a tragedy, but the origins of that photo were not a tragedy. In all these cases, it is a very personal event in a person's life. I would ask people for any crime victim to just always keep that in the front of their mind. John continues to push for answers in his sister's death, and now his research has expanded to include other cold cases. John has a website and blog, which include information surrounding the disappearance of a number of females from the Quebec region. Recently, he has also broadened his investigative work to include missing women from the U.S., where he now resides. He has even started his own podcast. When we asked John why this was so important for him to do, he replied, I guess I feel compelled to do it because it's the right thing to do. If no one else is going to stick up for these unsolved murders, then I'll do it. So what do you think happened to Teresa Lore? And who do you think killed her? We've presented all the facts to you, and obviously there is still no definitive answers. Perhaps just more questions. But our hope is that in by presenting all of these details, someone, somewhere, will hear Teresa's story and will remember something. Almost 40 years has passed, yet a family still searches for a conclusion on why their loved one was taken from them. Teresa was born on October 12, 1959. If she was still alive today, she would have been approaching her 59th birthday. She would have been the proud aunt of five nieces and nephews. And also quite possible, she might have started a family of her own. John imagines she might have even been on her way to a career path in criminology. And perhaps would have embarked on that bike tour across the Netherlands like she had talked about doing when she was 17 years old. But her family will never know of the adventures she might have had, how many mountains she may have climbed, or how many oceans she might have crossed. What's for certain is that if Teresa were alive today, her immense joy for life and her kindness would have made the world a better place. To find out more information on Teresa Lore's case, 
or to contact John about any leads, you can find him at TeresaAllure.com. You'll find tons of information that we weren't able to include, along with maps and an interview with Kim Rosmo, the geographical profiler who helped with the investigation. John's podcast is called Who Killed Teresa, and you can find it on iTunes and most other podcast apps. In addition, we'd also like to make you aware of a book that Patricia Pearson wrote titled When She Was Bad, Violent Women, and the Myth of Innocence. You can find Patricia's book on Amazon, and we encourage that you check it out. Thank you for listening to the 12th episode of The Minds of Madness. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. There are several ways you can support this podcast. You can subscribe, like, review, and share. If you'd also like to show your support to the show and enjoy an incredible, fresh, and tasty meal, please check out our sponsor, HelloFresh by going to www.hellofresh.com and enter the promo code MINDSOFMADNESS30 to receive $30 off your first week of HelloFresh. Please also consider supporting us through our Patreon site, which can be found at patreon.com slash madnesspod. We can be found on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. Also, we would like to send out a special thank you to the Funkors from Adelaide, Australia, and especially Sesta, who have been so generous to grant us permission to use their song, Feel the Madness, to use as our closing track. You can find them on Facebook and Twitter by searching The Funkors. Seriously, I have been listening to these guys for years, and I am so excited to include them in the show. You can also find them at the Record Label's website by going to www.goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E. I'm not prepared to run.